You can turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 24. Today we're going to begin in verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. I'll remind you where we find ourselves this morning. We're seeing the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey, one that took him from Antioch in Syria to the island of Cyprus to Asia Minor and then back to Antioch. Paul is accompanied by Barnabas, and uh, there have been two predictable things that have happened at nearly every stop. That's, that is belief and unbelief. And many disciples have been made, many people have come to faith, and there's also been a, a very hostile, angry, uh, as today we'll see, a violent response as well. And we're going to look at that, but first let's pray together. Father, as, as I stand to preach, Psalm 115 is in my head. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Uh, to your name be the glory for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Father, I ask that now, not to my name, not to my name, but to yours be glory. Would you be honored uh, through the preaching of your word? Send your spirit to work among your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Talia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, if you remember where we left off last week, Paul and Barnabas are in the town of Lystra. Paul heals a man who has never been able to walk. He's been crippled from birth. Paul heals him, and the crowd sees this, and they cry out, 
the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They think Paul and Barnabas are two Greek gods who have come down. And of course, Barnabas, they think, is Zeus. He's the taller, I guess, more handsome, regal-looking of the two. And so he must be Zeus. And then Paul, the gifted speaker, must be Hermes, the spokesman of the gods. And we saw Paul and Barnabas' response to this confusion last week. They are distraught over this. They tear their garments. They cry out to the people, what are you doing? We aren't gods. We're men just like you. There's only one God. And he made all creation. And we are only his servants. Don't mistake the king's messengers for the king himself. That's where we left off last week. And this week we pick up with this same group swinging from one extreme to another. They go from wanting to worship Paul to now wanting to kill him. And all it took was one little push. And they're all in. Luke tells us that the Jews who had been in these previous cities were the ones who instigated this. Just think about how spiteful they were that he'd left their town and they're following him. They're they're angry stalkers who have followed him and Barnabas to Lystra and are now wanting to see them dead and successfully persuade this unstable mob to stone Paul. You know, it doesn't remind you of the crowds in Jerusalem and how they felt about the Lord Jesus who entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And how did the crowd react? They're spreading their cloaks on the road in front of him and waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I'll remind you, Hosanna means pray, save us. That's what they're screaming to Jesus. And then less than a week later, they're shouting, crucify him. That's a picture of what we see here. This crowd is wanting to worship Paul. He tells them no, and then they stone him. You know, it's kind of the... I don't know, stereotypical crazy ex that comes to mind. They're obsessed with you and worship the ground you walk on and then they feel jilted and key your car and spread horrible rumors about you. But listen, this, is, this isn't just the stereotypical. This is, this is natural humanity. We, we are this way by nature. We are fickle. We are unstable, swinging from one Extreme to another, not having a clear idea of what we really want. And it's not until the Holy Spirit gets hold of us and brings us to spiritual life that we are made stable and able to persevere. Paul will write in Ephesians 4 a a mark of spiritual maturity. He says it no longer being tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and crafty deceitful schemes. 
He says, rather, we grow up in every way into him who is head. Who is that? Christ. James Montgomery Boyce made the simple comment that people are always fickle until God brings true stability into their lives through the gospel. We see how dangerous that, that fickleness can be. Paul is stoned, just took one little push, and this, this crowd turns into a violent riot. And notice, there is no trial, there is no judge, there's no defense attorney. They just begin throwing probably softball-sized rocks at Paul until he's laying there bloody and unresponsive. And they believe they actually killed him. They drag him out of the city, leave his body exposed to be just picked by ravens or dogs. And what caused this was him turning down their offer to be God, refusing their worship and faithfully serving Christ. And he almost was killed for this. I say almost because we read in the text, Paul does not die. They supposed he had died, but he hadn't. Verse 20, when the disciples gathered round him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. His body is laying there outside of the city. The disciples gather round him. Some of these new believers who have recently come to faith through his ministry are now ministering to Paul. I'll remind you, there are some well-known disciples that come from this city. Timothy, his grandmother Lois, and his mother Eunice, they're all from this city. Maybe they were in that crowd. We don't know for certain. It's possible they were in this crowd with Paul. But Paul gets up and he goes back into the city. And you have to think, how in the world is he alive? And what I thought of when I was sketching this sermon out, this might relate to some of you, I thought of that moment where Tyson Fury just rises from the dead. I don't know if you saw that fight was 2018. If you're a boxing fan, you're probably familiar. Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder are fighting in Los Angeles. They both make it to the 12th round. Tyson Fury takes several shots and takes a left hook right in the side of his head and falls down on the canvas. And everyone thinks that Wilder has just knocked him out. And the ref is down there beating the canvas next to his head. And the ref, he says he gets to five and Tyson Fury's eyes pop open. And then when he gets to seven, he gets back up and finishes the round and goes the distance. Now, that's a man who was punched by a very powerful individual, but it was a gloved fist. Paul is getting pummeled with rocks. It would have been a bloody mess. He would have been given scars that he's going to carry with him for the rest of his life. In Galatians 6, he talks about bearing on his body the marks of Jesus. And surely some of those marks came from this stoning. All you can say 
is that God had more work for Paul to do. That's what got him up. God had more work for him to do, and that's a good thing for us to remember. I don't want to encourage anyone to be reckless or irresponsible, but until it's your time, until the work he has appointed for you is finished, you cannot die. That was true for Paul. He gets up, he goes back into town, presumably stays the night in the home of one of the believers there, and then the next day makes this 65-mile journey to Derby, which is the final new town he's going to before heading back. We aren't told much about Derby. Verse 21, all Luke says is that when they'd preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So all you've got, the gospel is preached, disciples are made, and then the return journey begins. We'll hear more about Derby in chapter 16. In chapter 20, we're told of a representative from Derby who's coming with some other Gentile churches, bringing an offering to Jerusalem. But that's about all we know. But we do know the Lord was working. His church flourished. And then the return journey begins. We're told that they go back to Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, then back to the coast. Now, some of you have maps in the back of your Bibles, and you could look at those later and see kind of the outline of Paul's first journey. If you aren't familiar with the landscape, you won't know that when Paul and Barnabas are in Derby, there is a quick, straight shot over land back to Antioch. But they're going to go back the way they came. And I, I thought of explaining it like this. If you're still geographically challenged, this might, not, this might not help you, but I'm trying. Let's imagine that I am going to visit some college and seminary friends. I've got a week. I'm going to hit a bunch of stops, visit some college and seminary buddies. And so I leave Corinth and I hit Birmingham, spend a day in Birmingham, then go from Birmingham to Atlanta. And then from Atlanta up I-24 to Chattanooga, and then from Chattanooga to Nashville. You all with me? Now, straight easy shot would be Nashville back to Corinth, but that's not what I do. I go from Nashville to Chattanooga to Atlanta to Birmingham back to Corinth. That's what Paul does. Paul doesn't take the short overland route from Derby back to Antioch. He goes back the way he came to these towns where he's already been, where he's already been run off. But he retraces his steps. Why? Well, Luke tells us. He wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples. First time around, seeds had been sown, but now he's going back to water and fertilize. Or you could look at it this way. First time around, he's laying the foundation, and now he's going back and building upon it. Paul wasn't one of those ministers who stopped into these places, preached, and then went to the next place, and then got to the end of the road, and then went back and reported and said, Hey, 
We, we uh, preached to this many people. We had this many people get saved. We had this many people get baptized. And simply be content with that. He goes back. Evangelism is important, but so is discipleship. He wanted to strengthen the souls of those believers. And how does he do that? Well, we see in verse 22, the first thing is teaching. Teaching about what? Teaching them to persevere in suffering. We see this in verse 22. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He's teaching them continue in the faith because through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom. Remember, Paul, going back, has fresh new scars on his face, his hands, his arms. He's probably still black and blue, possibly wrapped in some bandages and going back to these towns. What would the temptation be for these new believers? Well, if Paul's God isn't able to protect Paul, what will he do for us? If this is how an apostle is treated, then what about us? How are we going to be able to live and survive in this city? But Paul is teaching them something. Through tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom. This is completely counterintuitive to how we think. How we normally think is, all right, I'm going to come, I, I come to faith in Christ And things get easier. And things get better. And the hard days go away. And God blesses me. I don't have the problems I had before. But that's not the way of Christ. What we see over and over again in Scripture is that the way of Christ is suffering. Taking up your cross. Dying. It's completely backwards to what, how we normally think. And Paul is preparing them. He's saying trials are coming. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If our Lord suffered, so will you. So don't be surprised. Don't let it undermine your faith. Continue in the faith. We need to hear these words so that we won't be surprised when suffering comes. Now, every one of us is going to suffer. Every one of us will suffer. We'll suffer to varying degrees. Uh, when, I, when I simply just, in the area of my ministry time, I think about that compared to one of my closest friends from seminary, and he's had so many more potholes in the road that he's hit. And it's not because... Of him or he's doing anything wrong or I'm an inherently better pastor, that's been his road. And we're going to experience suffering to various degrees. But Calvin made the comment, he said, no Christian is going to be pampered to the point that you enter the kingdom free of all hardships. That suffering is coming 
But through that suffering, through those tribulations, we enter into what? The kingdom. The kingdom of God. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 4 that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what awaits the other side for the believer. The kingdom. Rest. Lasting fullness of joy. An eternal weight of glory beyond our comprehension. That's what's waiting. Now, it's important to know that, like Calvin says, no one's going to make it to heaven free of all hardship. We remember that this is not just something with believers. Everyone will suffer. Everyone will have tribulations. Everyone will have hardship. But the difference is what's waiting on the other side. For the believer, there's joy beyond the sorrow. For the unbeliever, the sorrow will only get infinitely deeper and darker. You know, maybe you've known someone who has had a hard life. Maybe some of that hardness is self-inflicted, some of it not. But let's say there's no visible fruit of the Spirit of God working in this person's life. They're miserable, sad, angry, and maybe they make the comment, something to the effect of, you know, my life has been so bad that if for no other reason I'll have to go to heaven, God owes me. After the hand that I've been dealt, if God is fair and just, he'll bring me into his kingdom. Oh no, maybe you know someone like that. That's a dangerous position to hold. That's a deadly position to hold. Because the truth is that you don't deserve heaven just because you've lived a hard life. Jesus Christ is the only person who deserves heaven. And the only reason that we have heaven waiting on the other side is because of this question 60 from the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God because of the work of Jesus imputed to you? Everyone is going to suffer hardships. What's different is what's waiting on the other side. Calvin makes the comment that for the unbeliever, those afflictions are merely an entrance into hell, while the saints, for them it works out well and leads to a happy, joyful end. It's important to remember what lies beyond the suffering and the call that Paul gives is to persevere. So he teaches them, persevere in the face of suffering. Second thing he does is appoint elders in every church. Elders are appointed men who would shepherd the flock, guard the teaching, defend the church from false teachers and those who would cause division. And the wording can be a little confusing. Uh, My translation reads, 
they had appointed elders for them in every church. This sounds very much like an Episcopal form of church government, like like the the Methodist church, where you have bishops and district superintendents who will say, all right, pastor, you're going to go here and you're going to go here and I'm going to send you over there for five years. And that's almost kind of what it sounds like. It's important to look at the language here. The, the Greek word that my ESV translates as appointed is, I'm going I'm to mess this up, kairotineo uh, literally means to vote by stretching out the hand. So this appointed, to vote by stretching out the hand, what does that sound like? Voting. And when we see what happens in Acts Six, that there are seven chosen to serve the church as widows. Now, we aren't told in Acts 6 that those are elders, but it is a similarity. What we see, the soul is strengthened. It's being a part of the local church, being under the discipline and the care of elders who have been appointed by the congregation. Now, third thing, there's teaching to persevere in the faith, there's the uh, Paul and Barnabas oversaw the election and installation of elders. And then third, Paul and Barnabas commit these churches to the Lord. Now, what are Paul and Barnabas about to do? They're going to leave. They aren't staying in Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. They aren't staying there forever. They're just passing through and then they're going back home. And these newborn baby churches are going to be on their own. But Paul and Barnabas are not abandoning them. They prayed and fasted and committed these fledgling churches to the Lord, entrusting them to his care. Now you think there's something most all of us experience that we uh, can help us, that can help relate here. Most all of us have either ourselves or someone we know or love will go under the knife. Uh, you'll have surgery. Um, I, I remember uh, two very important, meaningful surgeries that have been a part of my life. Um, uh, sitting on a stool holding Molly's hand as some surgeons bring our two little girls into the world. And you know what I was doing during that time? I was entrusting uh, my wife's care and the care of my children into the hands of those doctors. We all do the same thing when we go under a knife. And I'll say for uh, doctors in the present, it always helps when you're fond of those doctors. When you're fond of them and trust them, it makes it a lot easier to let your loved one go under their care, especially when you get that phone call mid-surgery that, hey, your loved one is still asleep, but we found this, we need to do this, slight change of course. It's always easier when you love that doc. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. Entrusting these churches to the care of the Lord. And this is the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. 
when he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And isn't that an amazing thought? The thought that the same hands that Jesus trusted to receive his spirit at his bodily death, those are the same hands that are going to uphold and preserve these churches. Paul and Barnabas aren't abandoning them. You've got to remember who these, these churches belong to. This isn't Paul's church. It's not Barnabas's church. It's not even the elders of Iconium and Lystra. It's the Lord's. John Stott makes the statement that the church belongs to the Lord and he can be trusted to look after his own people. That's incredibly encouraging to remember. The same God who spoke in Isaiah 41, saying, But you whom I have chosen, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. That's the covenant promise these churches have been brought into. Well, the last thing we see is the report back at home. Paul and Barnabas go all the way back, hit all the cities for a second time, get back to the coast, preach in Perga, head to the port town of Italia, and then get on a boat and sail back to Antioch. And once they're back, they gathered the church. And we see in verse 27, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, it's, it's interesting. Some of the most common questions, I don't know why we do this. Some of the most common questions, what do we always ask missionaries? What is the weather like? What did you have to sleep on? What was the food like? I mean, we've got these questions we always ask that we're, I don't know. Maybe that points out what we find important. I don't know. But they get back and they could have talked about everything they did. Oh, we went to Cyprus and we battled against this magician and we converted the, the head Roman official on the island of Cyprus. And then we did all these things in these towns in Asia Minor. That's not what they do. They declared all that God had done with them. Their success, their strength, their safety was all due to the action of God. He's the one who opened the door to the Gentiles. And as we end, as they ended this journey, I mean, I have to think that their hope, their excitement, their joy was not only in what God had done, but also in what God would do in the future. I mean, that's what enabled them to continue. This, Paul doesn't retire after the first missionary journey. He doesn't get back to Antioch and say, all right, I did my piece. I have served the church. I'm going out to pasture. He doesn't do that. There's going to be two more, two more journeys. There's going to be more persecution. There's going to be more getting run out of town. 
There's going to be more imprisonments. There's going to be a shipwreck, a snake bite. There's going to be more tears. Through many tribulations, they must enter the kingdom. But I have to think that arriving back and looking back and also thinking about what's ahead, they knew God had been faithful and he would continue to be faithful. And that's what kept them going. And surely, Paul, being the Jew he was, would have had Psalm 126 in mind. Thinking about all those towns he would go to, everywhere he would preach, throwing out the seed of the gospel, and entrusting the growth and prospering of those churches to the Lord. Just like with Psalm 126, he could say, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That's what pushed him on to that second journey. Remembering that there's joy beyond the sorrow. A morning of gladness after a night of grief. Heavenly kingdom after many tribulations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us that same vision and that same trust in you? You are the God who has saved us. You are the God who preserves us. You are the God who will see us through and bring us home. Father, while we know that you will not lose one of your own, Would you cause us to be those who who keep the faith, who persevere to the end, who run the race well, trusting in your power and your strength, all for your glory. And Father, when those days come, when the darkness comes and the storms of life Arise when the tears flow. Father, would we remember that there is joy beyond the sorrow. And for those who weep, in the end, they will go out with shouts of joy. Father, help us to trust in this, your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.